Welcome to the Woke Blokes podcast, hosted by Nick Sutherland from MindFit and Ryan Hassan from the Center for Healing. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Woke Blokes podcast. It's Ryan Hassan here. I'm joined by Nick Sutherland. Nick, how you been this last week? How's ISO life going for you? ISO has turned into solitude O. Solitude O? What's that look like? Uh, well, solitude is just a conscious disconnect, I think. It's a, a mindful exercise. in Well, isolation, especially with corona, has been enforced. Um, but this is me choosing to disconnect. So I'm off social media. Oh, God, it's so, so good. I don't think I'm getting back on social media. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I had... Uh start of this end of last year start of this year i had about three weeks of none and it was fantastic and then i did the classic like turned it all back on i'm like what did i miss and realized i missed fucking absolutely nothing and then yeah i am using it a lot less then but it still has this weird little pull because i remember saying the exact same thing as you at the time I'm like i'm not gonna fucking go back fuck this but now you know, you come up with like, oh, I've got to use it for my business or this kind of thing. So it does no, tend to draw I, you back in. For me, it's just boredom. Like when I did the 10-day Vipassana meditation, I loved not being anywhere near my phone. They handed my phone back to me at the end and I was just like, Ugh, no thanks. Uh, and it took probably three or four days before you fall back into social media. But it was, it was mainly just a boredom thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Where this time I've got a little... PA, but she, a little helper person. Um, so I'm just going to outsource all of the social media stuff to her. What is she, a little and pixie or something? Just like about a few yeah, inches tall? Yeah, you know, a little elf. Elf on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, so I've gone into this isolation, disconnected from social media, um, and I've had to do that because I was in a bit of a mess. So, do you have a fortress of solitude like Superman? No, (laughs) that's that's the honest answer. No, (laughs) so let's see. So, you've you've maybe set a few little boundaries at the minute with your own energy. Well, usually, you know, you and I do this, We, we go into solitude, we'll go away for a week or a couple of days or whatever. Um, you know, I went to New Zealand by myself for 10 days and just drove around in the Winnebago playing golf. Uh, I went to Bhutan and Cambodia by myself. I've done a Vipassana retreat. I go camping down in Gippsland. So usually I do this sort of stuff. Um, But I realized I've been doing it probably more reactively when I've had to do it instead of doing it proactively like you you more do. So um, the big realization has been that, yeah, uh, I'm an empath and I... (laughs) <laughs> completely forgot <laughs> <laughs> how do you forget that it seems to be quite a quite a thing that's right there all the time how do you forget because you grow up being conditioned that it's a bad thing mm-hmm. and to stop being sensitive so when you are sensitive uh, you sort of go into a sense of shame and, and a bit of embarrassment and you try and suppress it and push it down and push it away and be something that you're not. That's, that's you know, the only thing I can partially relate it to is being gay and 
what it would be mm. like to be gay. So, mm. you know, suppressing your sexuality because it's not the norm and people don't like it. And then finally, you know, and, and, and having gay tendencies perhaps and people going, oh, stop being so gay, would you? Mm. And not realising that you may be gay and, and, and I, I am an empath and, and telling me to stop being sensitive is telling me to stop being me and who I am. Suppress part of your nature. Totally. Yeah, totally. for people, for people who don't... suppressed it. You go. Not only suppressed it, but then became ashamed of it. Mm, okay. This, this is, yeah, I suppose if someone is homosexual, that is part of their nature as well. It's, it's a very good analogy. Um, for people who don't know, look, what is being an empath? What does that mean? Uh, we're just, we are, I've learnt we have more mirror neurons, so our brains are literally different to other people's. You know, when we're having a conversation, we've got all these little micro movements in our face, for example. I can pick up on so many more of them than somebody that doesn't have those neurons. Mm-hmm. The, the way I have spoken about it in the past without realising it is, is you know, you go down to the beach and there's a rock pool, I can see every grain of sand in the bottom of the rock pool where mm. most people can just see rocks or... Bunches. ...crab or a fish or something. Yeah. Mm. And it's not something you ask for. Um, so that constant flood of information uh, is... You can drown in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not only that, you pick up on it people's energy as well you feel what other people are feeling um you know, classic thing is all these videos get sent around of people being hurt you know they're doing stupid shit at home and, and they'll fall over and hurt themselves I, I can't watch that you know because i feel what that person is experiencing mm-hmm. in that time i wish i could i wish i could just laugh at it like everyone else and 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 oh what a dickhead but it's it's not possible for me to do so because you have a visceral experience of it it's uh exactly yeah yeah i encourage people to check this out if they think they might be that way inclined i'm well we chatted before the biggest giveaways if you if you can't watch anything violent if you can't watch the news or listen to the news or or you can't watch people being hurt or you cringe um yeah, it's definitely worth checking out to see if you're an empath or not. Absolutely. And this sort of links in with, I don't know if I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but the highly sensitive person, which aren't, we spoke before we turned the mics on, aren't the same, but I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between those two categories. Um, highly sensitive people, around 15 to 20% of the population. Um, why that is, the lady who does them has done the most research on this, Dr. Elaine I can't remember her last name, but uh, she's done the most research on this stuff and it's sort of her summation that the reason why there's that percentage of the population, because they found that there's that percentage of the animals they've studied as well, uh, have this highly sensitive trait too. And they think it's around maybe a survival of the species thing is that if some people have a certain percentage of a population has a more highly tuned nervous system, which is what a highly sensitive person is, which is just, you feel everything more. Um, 
then that allows for propagation of the species because those ones are, say if there's a tribe, there's 20% or 15% who hear the noises of something out there or they're more attuned to something that's about to go wrong and um, or can tune into what other people in the tribe are going through, which they need to actually bring out. So um, it's an interesting yeah. theory, um, but at the end of the day, there is that percentage. For me, with the highly sensitive person, there's like a questionnaire you can do and I'm just way down that, that high end, which is kind of good to know. As a guy, it can be very weird because we're not seen as sensitive and it's seen as more of a, a feminine trait but you know we all have that feminine and masculine energy it doesn't matter what our gender is but um yeah. it, it's good to know that because like you said it's it can get suppressed when we're younger because it's uh seen as different well i'm 42 and am i just coming out as being an empath you know and i've spent last four five days embracing and accepting it and owning it and being at peace with it and being okay with it and and yeah just trying to trying to understand that i have to live a certain way i have to do certain things in order to be okay because i can't allow me to get into the headspace that i was in last sunday um, yeah yeah it's like you know if you're if, if you have to sit down every night and watch yeah some, someone getting hurt on the tv or something and you have to do that you have to change my circumstances because i can't we had this we watched this show the other night we were watching um uh you know the david attenborough stuff and all that on netflix yeah. you know he's got all the different series and anyway, we're on the kids one for tommy so watching something and i'm like oh there's a attenborough one on here it was like behind the scenes so it was showing like uh a lot of the actual film crews and what they have to do to get a lot of this footage and um there was this one right at the end of the episode and I was freaking out. I'm like, how can this be on the kids one? They were trying to film these walruses. There's like hundreds and hundreds of walruses and apparently normally they would go up on these ice cliffs and be okay, but the ice had melted. You know, his whole thing's about climate change. So now they're trying to climb up these rocks out of the ocean and, and they, they're so awkward. Walruses are massive and fucking awkward. But they climbed up this 80-meter cliff face to the top and the whole time I'm like, how the fuck are they going to get down? Anyway, that was what the whole thing was about. They couldn't. So these filmers were, film people were filming it and the walruses weren't, uh, didn't have the dexterity to get down a cliff. So they were just all falling to their death. Hundreds and hundreds of walruses and it's showing them all just falling down this cliff to their death. I'm, yeah, I was sitting there. I was like, I was traumatized. I'm like, why is this on the kids one? Why are they showing this? And I've been thinking about it for days ever since. And, um, you know, and I've spoken to a mate who watched that with his kid, and he's like, "Yeah, how funny with all those walruses falling to their death." I'm like, "That wasn't funny at all. No, it was the worst thing I've no. ever seen." <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, you said the word trauma in that, and, and that's what we're experiencing. But the thing with empaths is that it's such a blessing, but such a curse. Mm. Like we get to experience, like if the spectrums, you know negative 10 to positive 10 for most of the population we're probably negative 20 to positive 20 so i get to experience joy and love and all the amazing things to so many degrees further than regular joe Mm -hmm. but conversely i experience Mm -hmm. and i'm very open with my history of mental health issues um and it's it's so common for empaths to experience mental health issues mental illnesses um yeah. severe anxiety and depression uh but also physical illnesses fibromyalgia is huge amongst empaths as well 
So yeah, it's yeah, both. It's, there's the two sides to it. You can't have one without the other, you know. No, you can't. And there so is this high correlation between the yeah mental illness and and addiction and that kind of thing as well. Yeah. So not living an empathic life, I haven't been helping myself. You know, I'm always meeting other people's needs and not taking the time to to self manage and look after my energy. Mm-hmm. Um, which has got me into some shitty spaces. So moving forward, especially in relationships, like it's you, you can't hide from me. We're we're, we're walking lie detectors. Um, nothing gets past us, which uh, which is really sad in a relationship because people need to not feel so exposed all the time. I guess mm-hmm. you know. But I read this thing where it said if there was a village of ten thousand people. 200 of them would be empaths and probably 10 of that 200 would be men. Right, okay. So in a village of 10,000, there's only going to be about 10 of us that are blokes. Okay, is that, do you think that's just a, you know, something that happens naturally or do you think that a lot of men are this way inclined but would never know it or never be able to acknowledge it? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. I think women... Women being the the primary caregivers are more in touch with their emotions. They're more emotive. They're more mm-hmm. emotionally driven creatures. They're more nurturing. More, um, yeah, more nurturing, more caring, mm-hmm. more empathetic. Um, you, know, you can still be empathetic without being an empath as mm. well. You can put yourself in someone's shoes, but you can't feel what they're feeling like empaths yep. do. Um, but yeah, and then there's the the other side where blokes aren't really taught how to evolve that part of themselves, that caring and nurturing nature. Like, as a man who's highly expressive, I try and talk about my feelings and I get run over a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think women need to do a much better job of, you know, you hear it, I, I wish my husband was you know, more open with his feelings. But as soon as a bloke opens up with his feelings, the, the women will run them over because women aren't used to it. You know, so yeah, it's, not it's a, a, they're not mm. consciously doing it. It's not a bad thing that women. I'm not having a crack at women, but I think when a man does open up, uh, whatever he's feeling, whatever he's saying, needs to be validated and needs to be recognised and understood instead of turning it back around to making about the woman's feelings. Yeah, yeah, it can often be a real pattern interrupt that catches a lot of people off guard. And so all of a sudden, yeah, you can say for years, I wish you'd open up, and then finally it does, and it's like, oh, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> I didn't know, want to know you had all those demons. Put the to- toothpaste back in the tube, would you? Stop it. <laughs> Too late. It's like, I, I, there was this, are you a Seinfeld fan? Yes. Yeah, uh, there's the episode where uh, Jerry starts getting feelings because this he, he has a girlfriend because he runs through girlfriends all the time and <laughs> she's like oh yeah because he goes it was because it's a funny he's a funny character it's like he doesn't care and blah 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 yeah. and he has this one girlfriend and she goes oh you never get angry i've never seen you get angry and he's like yeah, yeah. And, then he, and then he tries to and she laughs at him because it's like really in disingenuous <laughs> and she goes that's not good for you you know you shouldn't suppress blah blah and then he started getting angry and it was like the the cat came out of the bag you know then he was getting angry at everything because it started to feel good and then later on something happened and he started crying and he's like what's this salty discharge coming out of my face because now all the emotions were coming out 
And um, he was trying to give George a hug and tell him he loved him and George is getting freaked out. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very funny. I, from a therapist's point of view, watching that episode, it was hilarious. And then at the end, uh, he finally was like, come on, George, I want to talk. And George is like, stop this, Jerry. And then George is finally, who's the most disturbed <laughs> character in the show. And then George goes, all right, I'm going to tell you what's in my heart. And then it cuts to the end and Jerry's put all his emotions back in. And George is like, what happened? He goes, you scared me straight. You scared me straight. It's all gone back in. <laughs> and he left George just all his That's emotions good, out really on the good. table. <laughs> left hanging uh, Jerry's at one end of the spectrum but I think Kramer's at the other end like Kramer feels everything he's so expressive in his yeah you know, the physicality as well and there's no filter with what he says uh, no and then I think George is somewhere in the middle you know, he, he's very emotive but then he shuts himself away as well so yeah. I think he's I the think classic neurotic job. yeah they've done a great job with, with finding characters yeah. the whole length of the spectrum yeah, yeah, no, it's. I think that was one of the big successes of the show was having that. Every you could see yourself in every character <laughs> at yeah. some point. Uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, totally. so it's interesting. I think yeah, I mean the empath or highly sensitive person obviously links with mental illness and addiction, but also you find a lot of people start heading towards, I suppose, career paths that are more on the creative side. So that can be therapist or counselor, that can be a comedian, that can be an artist, that can be a singer, songwriter or a musician. It's because if you know, if, if someone has more of that highly attuned nervous system, like you said, like if you go to the beach, instead of seeing just a crab and a rock, you see every single detail of what's happening. That's why then a lot of people become some sort of an artist because they can then, you can convey what the experience of life is like to the people who aren't in that category. That's why you'll find a lot of empaths or highly sensitive people are affected deeply by music. You know, I know, yeah. you know, I could I listen play, to... I, I play could... the drums. Exactly. Remember the meditation I did with Tool? Yep. That, that Tool afternoon I had? That mm-hmm. was... That was... I, I was not in a good headspace. So that afternoon was me trying to clean out my energy, I suppose. And having a drum kit in the house again is so important for me because I can just go and release creatively. Um, I've been journaling like a fucking madman. It's yep. just, I'm just writing, writing, writing. I've got um, this really good article here, 13 signs of an empath. So mm-hmm. one, you take on other people's emotions as your own. Two, sometimes you experience sudden overwhelming emotions when you're in public. Mm-hmm. Three, the vibe of a room matters to you a lot. And I've experienced this. I can walk into a party and you just go, no, nah, I, can't, I can't stay here. I can't stay in this room. Um, you under, Four, you understand where people are coming from. And this is, a lot of this work goes back to Dr. Judith Orloff. Um, she's sort of the, the, the foremost, I don't want to use the word expert, but yeah, um, Cool, an expert. A, no, I hate the word expert. It's like Do you're you? your own bathwater. Yeah, as soon as you say you're an expert, it's like. But yeah, you're calling know. her an expert. No, I'm saying she's a, she's probably the most prolific person in that field. She wrote a book called The Survival Handbook for Empaths. Okay. So, uh, number five, people turn to your advice. All through high school, I was like the counselor for all my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six, tragic or violent events on TV can completely incapacitate you. <laughs> number seven, you can't contain your love of pets, animals, or babies. 
<laughs> I, I seriously can't. I just go to fucking pieces. Uh, number eight, you might feel people's physical illnesses too, not just their emotions. So I talked before about how I um, was on an aeroplane with a person and they felt sick and I felt fine due to turbulence. And then when we got off, I threw up and they were okay. So mm. I, I took on what they were feeling. This brings up uh, surrogating, which I want to talk about at the end of this list. Yep. Okay. Number nine, you can become overwhelmed in intimate relationships because uh, you just get engulfed and then get swamped, especially if you feel very strongly for a person. You know, as I said, like, if you're loved by an empath, it's going to be a completely different experience to being loved by someone else because mm. our feelings are so much more deeper and powerful. Um, number 10, you're a walking lie detector. Once again, not a great attribute to have in a relationship because you know, everyone does little white lies and needs to put up a little bit of a facade and, and, and you just you can't around us. Uh, number 11, you can't understand why any leader wouldn't put their teams first. Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, empath, and you can tell through the way that she managed um, all the, the crisis that's happened over there. The, mm-hmm. um, was it the earthquakes? Yeah, yep. Or, In yep, Christchurch, yep. And, and the and coronavirus and everything. Uh, number 12, you have a calming effect on other people and the power to heal them. So you know, in my work, people just walk in and all of a sudden they're walking agitated and then within a couple of minutes, they're completely, mm-hmm. the walls are down. And number 13, you cannot see someone in pain without wanting to help. And this has been an issue for me. Which, uh, that attribute is great in my work, but then outside of my work, I can still see everyone mm. in um, emotional pain and suffering. And I've just got this desire to, to go and help and to heal and to, to end yep. that suffering. But people aren't asking for it. Yeah, and people don't want it. And when you when you go up to people and say you know, leading a horse to water and trying to make it drink, it's like sticking someone's head in the water and saying you're thirsty, and they're like, "No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm fine." Not. <laughs> yeah, I can see you are dehydrated. No, I'm not. I'm good. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's really important to come into an understanding of if you are an empath, and if so, what you need to do. A, to manage yourself, but B, to um, coexist, I guess, with, with other people that may not be empathetic. Yeah, and I think the, this is where that, you know, times of solitude help because you need just a bit of a break because, like you said, it's not something you can just switch off and, you know, all of a sudden you see all the, the pain and suffering going on, whether that's on an individual or collective level, and you just want that to end. And... It's not yeah, going to end the, anytime soon. The whole soon. world's in suffering, and and I can't do anything about it. So yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard when you can see a person, someone you love, suffering, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, especially when so, you feel that suffering as well, and then you're like, you want it to end for them, but you also want it to end because you don't want to feel it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and a lot of empaths, uh, you know, in relationships, um, will sleep in separate beds because they're too close to the other person. Sometimes they'll sleep in separate houses. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, they need to check out often. Hello, Polly. Can you go outside, please? Thanks. Um, 
guest so, appearance, so, little cameo from Polly. Yeah, she is. Uh, yeah, so, it's, 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 but if, if you're in the dark with it, like anything, if you're in the dark, then you can't do anything about it. So Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. We can't, you can't change what we're not change. aware of. Yeah, first step to change is awareness. And then the yeah. second, second step to change is acceptance. So accepting that I'm an empath and that it's actually okay to be sensitive, contrary yeah. to what I've heard from a lot of people. That's right. So then you have to start to work on that old programming because you say, okay, it's okay to be sensitive, but then I've, I've heard that it's not growing up my whole life, so I've got to start to rewire that. And um, yeah, so I just touched on surrogating because it was real interesting what you said about the person on the plane feeling sick and whatnot. Then when you landed, you went and throw up and they felt fine. Um, so that's what, yeah, we would call surrogating. So it's when we see someone in emotional, mental, physical pain. And then because we have this ability to feel what other people are feeling, we feel like if we take that on board, it can alleviate the stress that's on that other person. And in this case, it sounds like it did because they felt fine after you threw up. <laughs> but then they, then they laughed and said, oh, I can't believe you threw up and I didn't. And I, don't, I didn't realize it at the time, but I took it really personally. Mm. Um, yeah, it was difficult for me to sit with it because I'm like, on some level I knew that I'd not done them a favour, but I'd, I'd helped and healed or assisted them. And then they turned around and sort of threw it back at me like it was mm. me being something wrong with me or something. Yeah, because so, they're just unaware, you know, but it exactly. feels very personal though. It feels very personal. Yeah. Because it's like, hey, and I took this on. You, people, you know that if, you know, you someone comes up to you and starts talking to you and they're, they're in massive distress, they've got this big problem and they just start offloading and venting and then they go, oh, I feel better now and walk off and you're left really heavy. So it's just like you've taken on all that stuff and say, let me uh, hold that, which isn't My yours to hold. of relationships, e- e- empaths are classics for attracting wounded birds or wounded doves mm-hmm. um, or narcissists. So... I had a history of, in my earlier days of, of wounded doves everywhere. They'd come in and they'd be low self-esteem, low self-worth, everything. I'd give and give and heal and heal. And then they'd go, ah, oh, feeling heaps better. Thanks, Nick. See you later. And they'd break off the relationship. And they'd be like, oh, what about me? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm drowning. Okay. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, well, I was depleted. I was completely yeah. empty. So, as an empath, it's so important to learn what our boundaries are, and we have to adhere to these boundaries, and no, that's not okay, no, I can't do that for you, even though I want to, no, I I don't, it's not going to be good for me, and before I can help anyone else, I need to be okay. Exactly, yeah, yeah, that's a a learning process, isn't it, because you know the outcome, but it's like those... yeah. My, my history of, of being codependent on alcohol was you know, a classic case of an empath in suffering. <laughs> Imagine an empath being in the army. <laughs> not, a, not a good recipe. And you, you, and you got dis- medically discharged with anxiety and depression. Yeah, it's, it sort of all fits now. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you talk spe- about? That the hard path to happiness, mate. You took you, you take your, the hard path yourself. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then I spent eight years drinking to to numb the pain and, mm. and 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 to try and numb everything basically. So yeah, you like you said before, addiction amongst empaths is is massive as well. And if if the person treating that person doesn't recognise or realise that they're an empath and factor that in to 
the therapy or the healing, then it, it's, it's, it's it's lacking. Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah. it's not seeing the whole picture. Exactly. It's like it's like if you went in and you know you're going in for some physical issue with the doctor and they'll give you a medication. They're like, oh, do you have any coexisting medical conditions? And you're like, no. But literally, you've you're on four different medications because you've got something else going on. It's a similar thing. It's like a real uh, spiritual. Uh, I don't know. It's not a condition. I just suppose it's an aspect of our nature. But then that yeah. um, back to that surrogating piece that often starts in in early childhood when we're we're very young I and mean, it's normally a caregiver or someone that we love we see them Are in emotional talk about your your personal experience yeah 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 mine was um hopefully mum's not listening but uh my, uh my a lot of my healing journey has uh been around going back and processing a lot of emotions that i'd taken on from my mum so you know whenever i saw her in some sort of distress or anxiety or whatever it was when we we're a little kid we we don't have as many options, right? And this is this will lead on. Dr. Gabor Mate talks about this as being the cause of ADD as well. Actually, it's not well, genetic. Also or such sponges as well, though. We don't have any defenses either. Yeah, that's right. But it's like so. I'll, I'll link this back to the um, empath thing. But Gabor Mate talks about how uh, ADD starts in in most cases as a coping mechanism, not as some you know faulty circuitry in the brain that mm. we're born with, mm. is that. If I'm young and someone comes in and threatens me or I feel threatened in some sort of situation, if, I, if I'm if i an adult, I've got options, right? If someone came in right now to you, Nick, and just said, you know, challenged you or whatever it was and you felt threatened, you can fight back. Like you're a grown man. You have the ability to fight back. Uh, you can call... Yeah, I know, I know. But you've got options, right? You can. You can break the mold once in a while, punch someone's lights out. Uh, and then you could call for help. You could just, the window could be open. You could scream and get, you know, your neighbor to come over, right? Or you could run. You could just dodge out of the way and you could run. Right? You have options of dealing with this stressful situation. Fight, flight. Correct. If I am a young kid, I don't have those options. I can't get up and run away. I can't fight back. I'm only a kid. Uh, I can't call out for help because the person who I would call out to call out to might be the one causing the stressful situation. So now I literally have no defense mechanisms against this stressful situation. So oftentimes if people are presented young kids in that situation, their go-to coping mechanism is to start dissociating. It's like if I start to dissociate, I'm not going to feel as much pain because I'm not going to be as present. So I just tune out and then this becomes the go-to. So now I'm at school, whenever I feel a bit of anxiety or a stressful situation, I just tune out and I don't know that I'm doing it consciously, but I just keep doing it. And this is where a lot of kids get labeled with ADD and that kind of thing when it's just a coping mechanism of how they deal with stress. So linking this back, do you have something to say about that, Nick? I'm relating to it and I have a story but I'm going to wait until you've finished yours alright beautiful I can just see the cogs in your mind ticking over it's beautiful to watch uh, and so what happens with this empath or this sensitive side is that when we're young and we see one of our caregivers someone that we love in emotional distress and we don't have the ability to comfort them or maybe make the situation less stressful for them by altering things in the environment because we're too little then what we do know that we can do is we can feel what they're feeling. And if I take on their emotions and start to feel it myself, it will ease the burden on them. So I'm trying to, I'm helping them in some respect. And then that becomes a real coping mechanism that we keep taking on and taking on and taking on emotions of the people that we love, especially, but eventually bloody everyone. Um, so it can be go from our parents and then it'll go to maybe siblings, and then it'll go to friends. And then when we grow up, it's girlfriends like you spoke about. So we just get into this real groove of taking on and taking on and 
taking on other people's emotions because that's how we learned was the best way to help. Um, so for me, that was as soon as I saw someone, it started with my mum, but as soon as I would see someone in emotional distress, I wouldn't even take this, I wouldn't think about it. It would just bang, take it on, right? And straight away, I would start feeling and feeling and feeling, not because I wanted to, but I thought that was going to help them because I felt like it did when I was younger. It sounds very empathetic in nature, and uh, it depends on what you read. I've read something that everyone has the capacity or potential to be an empath, but it's shut down. Like um, I've heard lots of conversations about we all have the capacity to, to see spirits or to be a bit psychic, but that that's closed off as as well when we're children. I. Here's, here's so many stories of kids seeing ghosts and then the parent will say, no, you didn't, no, you didn't, no, you didn't. And you'll, they'll convince the kids that they're being stupid or wrong or dumb or, or something. Or like an imaginary so, friend or something. I had one. Captain yeah. Dick French. Yep. Was it? <laughs> that was his name. <laughs> That's the best. Uh, what a great name. I know, but interesting. Um, so when I was growing up, my 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 dad was very violent, um, prone to violent outbursts because undiagnosed manic depression, drugs, alcohol, self-medicating, so forth. So it was me, my mum, my sister, and my dad, and he was violent towards all of us. But when he was violent towards mum and my sister, I couldn't do anything about it, and so. I took all that on, I absorbed all that on and it wasn't until I was 30 when mum said, oh by the way, you know that wasn't your fault, I had this massive ab reaction, this this huge release of, it was like all these internal scars were were pulled apart and just flushed from the inside, that's how cathartic this crying was Uh, and and it took me days to recover. I can only imagine because so you'd true. imagine that part of you would have been holding on to that blame from when you were three years old. Yeah, and the guilt. and mm. and But as I was saying before, what you were saying, it sounds like as children, I think we're all empaths, we're all absorbed because we're, we're, mm-hmm. that's how we learn is through these mirror neurons that I was talking about earlier. So monkey see, monkey do, and we, and we do just take everything on. Um so for me that was really important to to do and and a lot of people call it shadow work you've probably heard of shadow work and inner child healing and that sort of stuff and i think that's so important to to learn about our, our our darkness our monsters in the cave and to go and find them and to befriend them and to not let them be so scary or to not let them be so heightened because really they're just parts of us that are that are disturbed and in distress um you know so going and work doing some work with them is just going to benefit our overall well-being i think yeah and that's what we it's you always find this wounded inner child because like you'd imagine that the feelings that you are holding on to of blame and guilt from from taking on that your dad was violent and holding that as your fault, that manifests in wow, mental illness, diagnosis, uh, alcoholism. Like it, it manifests well, in so this, many. I, I I had this feeling that I was going to have children by the time I was in my mid twenties. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know where that notion came from. It was just a belief that I was going to have kids. I've ended up with no children, and I think a big part of that was because of my childhood. I was so afraid of turning into my father. I was so afraid of, you know, especially being an empath, the very thought of hurting someone else would have been causing such distress on a subconscious level that I would have done everything I could to not have kids. To not recreate that pattern. Yeah, that makes complete sense. To not put myself in a position where I could potentially continue that pattern. Yeah. I didn't trust trust myself. Yep, yep, that makes sense. And so it's like, sort of saying, Pete, you would see that as a shadow. So this side of you that's manifesting as destructive behavior you know, oh, this is a shadow and if I want to delve into that, I'm going to have to fight against it or I'm going to have to try and evolve it or whatever it is. But it's not that way at all. You just find that underneath the shadow was this child who took on all this blame that he didn't need to and was holding on to it for decades. And then it's a process of loving that child and all it took was words from your mum saying it's not your fault for finally that child to just let go. And no wonder and, you and, took days to and, recover. And the Linkin Park song, ironically. Which one? Uh, uh, I can never remember the name of it, but mum said, just listen to, this, listen to the lyrics of this song and talk mm-hmm. about the, the healing nature of music. You know, uh, I don't think this would work for everyone. It worked for me um, because of how I'm constructed and my nature, I guess. But uh, I don't know, I just listened to these words and it just everything peeled away. It was, yeah, it just okay. opened me so completely. Yeah. That's so funny. I, so, I, when I was... Go. Uh, no, I was just going to say, and, and the version of me that went through high school as well, you know, talk about ADD um, or ADHD. That's. I didn't have that, but I, I was always so emotionally needy. I was I was stealing stuff and giving it to people so they'd, make, they'd love me and, yep. and, and they'd be friends with me and everything. Because I was so, I had no self-worth, no self-esteem, no self-value, no self-love, no self-respect. No, all my self parts were completely um, debilitated and depleted. And you know, as I spoke before about empaths have a, a lack of who am I? Because we always take on so much as well. So it's it's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting space to get into when you sit back and park and, and look at it all objectively and start joining all the dots and you're like, oh, oh that's there and that's there yeah. and that's what's going on there. And sometimes you can realize what a, how, how futile it was because I had the image then of something similar when I was younger. So you can imagine there's a classroom of kids and there's 25, 30 kids and then it's like you don't know at the time because you don't have the awareness. You don't know, oh, I'm an empath or I'm a sensitive person and this is blah, blah, blah. You don't. You have no fucking idea. Like I had anxiety from the time I was 10, but I would never have... There's no concept in my mind, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. there's something wrong, right? But um, you'd imagine you're 25 to 30 kids. Some, a group of people, like probably half or more, are going to be in some sort of distress or, you know, suffering, all right? And then you feel that. So then you kind of want to make sure the whole room's okay. 
So then you're trying to fight this battle where you're trying to make sure the whole room's okay and you make this person's okay, but now someone's going to suffering over here and it's just constant and you can never, because you're never going to get a room of 30 kids where everyone's happy and fine. It's impossible, but you're trying to make it that way, which is just uh, I used to try so by making everyone laugh. I'd be the class clown. Yeah. That was my Yeah, plan. yeah, that's it. And that's so a way to do it had, on a group level. Had, <laughs> yeah, but that had, that had a two... Kill two birds with one stone. A... I alleviated everyone else's pain, but B, I'm uh, people liked me because I mm. throw myself under the bus. Or look I, how efficient you were being, mate. Or, <laughs> I, I really respect that, uh, that version of me. I, uh, yeah, I love kid, it. A, a kid had some skills. <laughs> skills, <laughs> but and um, that, um, that version of me that had the uh, Captain Dick French, my imaginary friend. Yeah. He was around because I was so lonely and so misunderstood. And mm. and I continue to experience that as an adult, this feeling of being misunderstood. Mm. Um, but having him in my life just created this amazing sense of comfort and, yeah. and peace. And like someone gets me, someone accepts me unconditionally. Someone's not telling me to stop being so sensitive. Yep. You know, and, and that's what he gave me. And I still remember the day he left and he said, um, all right, you're going to be okay. You don't need me anymore. And and off he went. And we used to sail the world. Like This is my imagination. We used to go yeah, on yeah. these amazing adventures. Looking back now, I, I was escaping reality. I was escaping yeah. the reality I was in. I couldn't drink. I couldn't do drugs. I couldn't do anything. So it's probably my coping mechanism. But when it, the day he left, I was, I was so sad. But I was also filled with this sense of peace as well because I realised that was me telling myself that I was going to be okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise that till decades later. But um, Yeah, that's almost like a bit of a parts integration you were doing on yourself. <laughs> no wonder I do what I do for a living. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> What a pisser. Um, yeah, it was funny you just brought up saying Lincoln Park because Lincoln Park was my... I was never a big Lincoln Park fan growing up. Me but neither. then they, they became... It was a bit of my anthem when I was beating the drug addiction. And um, they did this uh, live set at Milton Keynes, which my old housemate used to have. It was really amazing. But um, yeah, there was a few songs on there. But like Breaking the Habit live, obviously Breaking the Habit, I was coming off drugs, <laughs> uh, was kind of an anthem. And I would play that every day and like scream and start crying and everything. And like using a very, very forceful masculine energy, but like, a, yeah, I'm fucking doing this. And it used to really get me fired up. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what song it was for me that, that pulled me apart, but I can't remember the exact lyrics. I don't even why my mum was listening to Linkin Park either. <laughs> Just yeah. now that I think about it. <laughs> can't imagine her screaming to a few of those songs. I can. She's she's a weird unit. She's she's um, palliative care nurse. She's empath. She's angels and spirits and yeah. and all that. She very much walks the beat of her own drum. And that's what I need to do more. I need to in this sense of owning my nature I really do have to own it whole and entirely and if anyone's yep. got a problem with it that's on them if they can't deal with the if they can't see the positives that always come with some of the negatives you know um, 
it's, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's an interesting, interesting times ahead. It is, it is. And I think that's, you know, we hear all the time, people like, oh, what's, what's the best advice you got? Just be true to yourself. And everyone's like, what the fuck does that mean? Be true to yourself. You have to, you have to first understand who yourself is. So I think there's, we all have our nature and it's made up predominantly of a lot of, you know, patterns, traumas, beliefs, blah, blah, blah. But we do have these part of your true nature. You know, I think you've uncovered this is, you've always known, but you've just remembered that this is part of your true nature. So now the path is being true to that part, despite if, you know, it's going to mean making some, some hard decisions or setting some boundaries. Carl Jung was the first one that came up with the, the concept of a shadow self. And so when we say accept the self, we can't just accept the light bits. We have to mm. accept the dark bits as well. Yeah. And so the, the self is like a yin and yang. And if we only like ourselves when we're in the light part, that's not going to work. So mm. we have to accept that we have flaws, we're imperfect, we're, we've got immaturities, we've got unhealthy patterns from conditioning as children, we've got unhealed traumas it's a, it's a, the whole kit and caboodle has got to got to be accepted and we all have fucked up thoughts you know people like beat themselves up for an automatic thought pattern that comes up like you know if I'm down the beach and like some kids have made this beautiful sandcastle and a voice goes oh go and kick that fucking thing over now don't do it but like the voice comes up you know or like or like you're walking on a on the edge of a cliff and then a voice goes oh what if you jump now, you don't do it, but you just have these thoughts, you know? People, I'm just using examples for that I have, but we all have different fucked up thoughts at the end of the day. You know, we all have a shadow self and we can't, but by just by just liking the light, that's that, um, we're, we're just getting attached to one side. It's like people who say, I only want to feel love, joy and happiness. It's like, well, you're in for a fucking tough ride if that's all you want to feel. Do we need to do some shadow work with you, Ryan? Kick over little kids' sand Mate, castles. I love my shadow. It's a beast. It's an absolute beast. It's Too a big shadow. As a kid. Yeah. Too much. <laughs> um, something else I wanted to bring up. Actually, you. Um, we, we. I don't know how long. We'll just. You touched on something, and I just remembered with. Uh, you know, creative endeavors like you having the drums at home or or that mm. kind of thing, or listening to music. And I've been having chats with a few men lately who clearly have this strong sensitive and creative side that has been squashed throughout their life um you know we all have a analytical uh critical thinking self classic left and right brain and the creative self and then we can have different degrees but we've all got it i've seen speaking to a lot of men who have neglected that creative side for so long that it just it's screaming out for expression but the problem is that analytical side's gotten so strong that as soon as they're like, I've got time to play that guitar or I've got time to do that writing I wanted to do, the analytical mind's like, no, 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 you have to do A, B and C, you have to do this, this, blah, blah, and it'll talk them out of it. No, but you know, if you go and take those photos, do the photography, then you're going to have to store them on this backup drive and you know, you probably have to clear the backup drive. This is a literal conversation I had this week, right? And I'm like, are you hearing the excuses that that analytical mind's coming up with? They're fucking ridiculous, but we listen to it right because it makes sense yeah but meanwhile we do that over years and that creative part of us it's like a little version like we're a babushka doll there's a little creative one inside of us and it just wants to burst out and we've been putting it back in its box for years and then all of a sudden we create um 
an imbalance. So there's an imbalance internally because it's not getting expressed. And then that leads to agitation, frustration, you know, getting a little bit more angry and all this. And all it is is just let that creative side out and, and make time for it. And and don't listen to the analytical mind when it says you shouldn't do it for A, B and C. Just say, fuck it, I'm doing it. Because without fail, every time we let that creative side out, we feel better. And we say every single time we say, oh, I should have done that last week, should have done it last month. Well, if you don't create the outlet and do the creative stuff, that's where you're going to go to coping mechanisms. That's where you're going to go and mm. drink or take drugs or spend money or get into Facebook or whatever. So it's um, you know, don't put baby in the corner. Man. Let those mm. creative juices flow. Yeah, in whatever form that takes for you. And there'll be a form, just whatever you did when you were younger. Well, you know, I, I watch heaps of. I don't. I take heaps of photos. I'm very. Uh, you know, I love. I write. I take photos. I play the drums. I, I need that creative outlet. If I don't, if I can't do that, ooh, I, I get all bent out of shape. You get a bit funny. I get a bit funky. <laughs> um, we're going to touch on Bronnie Ware's work. That, that, that has to. That has to be next five. week, Nick. Yeah, so we'll, we're going to finish up and we'll, we'll come up with a yeah. segue for it. Because I think they're, they're, they're linked in. There's these five um, top regrets from the people who are dying that they wish they'd done. And I think a lot of it fits into what we've spoken about today. So Yeah, I think this is a good lead-in. Part one and two. Yeah, yeah. We Just to let everyone know, we initially, before we jumped on, the whole episode was meant to be about the five regrets of the dying and start to talk about those. And then... Uh, I said to Nick, I'm like, oh, we'll just touch on that empath thing. You know, that sounds like we might be able to talk about that for a minute. And we've talked about the whole fucking episode. <laughs> so people are going to have to wait with bated breath for the next yeah. episode. Yeah, I didn't talk about bated breath. Let's let's finish up with bated breath, all right? So this is a silly saying of the week. If I'm... Because Nick messaged me last night and you said, I want to talk to you about something tomorrow. I'm like, I'm waiting with bated breath. So... Where, Nick, where does this come from? This is a real weird one. I don't know, man. All I can, my first thoughts go into fishing bait. Like this Me too. Is the, the, con, the connection I'm doing. I'm like just picturing Ryan with sardine in his mouth. Just, <laughs> I've got, I've got bait and breath and I don't want to have a conversation with you because it's going to stink. No, I think that I've got baited breath, so I've got this fishy mouth and for, for whatever reason, I can't clean my fishy mouth until I've had the discussion with you. So it's like, I'm because if I say I'm waiting with bated breath, I can't, I'm, I'm saying I can't wait to hear what you have to say. That's what, it, that's what I'm trying to, in a roundabout way. Is that right? Well, when you, when you bait the hook and then you have to wait for the fish to come along. So the bait attracts the fish. There's a waiting period. So by me saying I've got this thing to talk about it's like I'm baiting you and you have yes. to wait until tomorrow and you're going to be the but fish I'm... that comes along so you've got you've got this I don't know where the breath comes into it you weirdo <laughs> <laughs> I think okay, that uh, so there you go let's do what we usually do let's go back to the first person that ever would have said this hmm in a yeah, well, so it was a fishing village in Greece, and um, uh, what was his name? Franco, Franco, right? Franco 
he he went fishing and they he could didn't catch any fish for the day and they were very poor this family right very very poor so ended up he had to cook his family the bait yeah right so they've they've had to just fry off some some shitty whiting. It was terrible. It was a really low moment for him in his life, not being able to provide for his family like he normally does. But the fish had just been a low season, and um, so he'd eaten the 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 dinner, and then his friend calls by, and he says Franco. So this is Miguel. Miguel <laughs> comes past and says Franco. <laughs> Miguel's not very it's Greek, not is very it? Greek names. No, I I I'm not good with my Greek names. Um. Antonio came past. George. George. And so he, he said, Franco, I know it's been a lean fishing season. You're having trouble with the family. But mate, tomorrow I'm going to show you I found a spot that no one else knows. And there's fish. just ju- They'll jump out of the water into your fucking boat. They're fi- it's so plentiful. It's amazing. And he just had his dinner and he said, I wait with bated breath. I can't, I can't add to that. I can't. <laughs> Yeah, drawn him in. I'm picturing him. He's, he's up picking these little scales out of his teeth from the little sardines that he's had to feed him. His family. He's like, ah, oh, I'm waiting. He's looking back at his his family are all depressed. Yeah. The, the, I, I'm looking this up. I'm look. I know we don't normally look it up, but it's really. I think baited. No, don't. Uh, you've done it. You've you've done it. Have I? Yes. That's it. That's perfect. All right. You've done it. Nick, let's uh, let's wrap it up there, and uh, I wait for next week's episode with bated breath, where where we talk about uh, the five regrets of the dying and how could, how we can avoid those. Bronnie Ware, palliative care nurse, watched thousands and thousands of people die. She saw there was top five that kept reoccurring that people on their deathbed the regrets they had about living their life, and she wrote a book about it years ago. There's been a lot written about it, but I think it would be important to talk about how we can avoid having those regrets when our time comes. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Any questions, hit us up on Instagram, uh, Woke Blokes Podcast, MindFit or the Center for Healing and uh, let us know what you'd like us to talk about and we will talk about it. I won't because I'm I'm off social media but Ryan can deal with it. I'll deal with it. I'm the social media queen. All right, peace out, everyone. Peace. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Woke Blokes podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Also, leave us a five-star rating. We thank you so much, and we'll see you all next time.